A warm welcome to each of you today and a warm welcome to our visitors. Um, if you have a child between five and nine, we now have Corner Pebble and our leaders are standing by the glass doors. Uh, for the rest of us, uh, we're looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 8 today, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, uh, which you can find in your corner posts, or alternatively, if you would like to follow along as we read that out now in your own Bible. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and this is God's Word. Uh, who is like the wise man, who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, What are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has the power over the wind to contain it, so no one has the power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve, and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of his life God has given him under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labor on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the Lord's Day. Lord, we thank you that we, your people, can come together, redeemed, have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Father, we thank you for our time now as we gather to hear from your word. Father, we pray that you would prepare us. Father, we pray that you remove any distractions that we've had this previous week. Be with us now as we come to hear from your word. And Father, I pray, be with me. Anoint me for this task of preaching your word. Father, we just pray your provision that you would be amongst each and every one of us. And we commit our time to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. 
So earlier this year, uh, Mark and I were reading and discussing the book, The Imperfect Pastor by Zach Eswine. And I remember reading that most ministers want to achieve greatness. They want to get the big church. They want to make huge impacts. They want to make a difference. But the sad reality, as one shared with the young pastor, is that you're nothing special. Uh, Most ministers will actually have a very ordinary ministry. I remember one of my lecturers in Christ College saying something like, 99% of ministers will just be ordinary, faithful preachers of the word. And he said, that's okay. He said, that's what you want to be, an ordinary, faithful preacher of the word. However, I think pridefully, pridefully, just like pastors, all of us, we can all think that we are more than just ordinary. Or we can sometimes think that we are someone great. We can sometimes think that we are someone special. I think sometimes we can sadly fall into the trap of thinking that we are better, that we are wiser than those around us. And sadly, we can sometimes think that we are greater and even know better than God. And if we start thinking like this, if we start acting like this, it can lead to our own downfall. My friends, the book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature written by King Solomon. And Solomon teaches us about how to live in a fallen world. I remember hearing once that the book of Proverbs is wise teaching given into an idealized context. While the book of Proverbs is wise teaching given into our fallen context. Here in Ecclesiastes, Solomon sees the world. He sees life under the sun. He sees life lived in a fallen world. And he sees time and time again that living under the sun is meaningless. He says it's vanity. He says it's havel. And as Solomon looks at this fallen world, he sees the hollowness of worldly joys, of worldly passions. And he says, these things, it's like chasing after the wind. He looks at the various aspects of living in a fallen world, and he does this sometimes more than once. And he shares with us how meaningless they are. But Solomon also shows us Where to find meaning? Here in our passage today, Solomon continues to reflect on life under the sun. Life lived in a fallen world. And our passage outlines three things for us to observe. First, that human wisdom is falling. Second, wickedness does not bear fruit. And then third, only in God is joy and wisdom found. Let's have a look at verse 1 together. Solomon says, Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Friends, as we read verse 1, it's almost as if Solomon is asking these questions rhetorically. It's it's as if he is suggesting that wisdom actually doesn't exist. That no man on his own can be wise. And if we refer back to our passage from last week, we may go, yes, 
No one is wise because no one seeks after God. And if this is the case, if this is the case that no one is wise, how do we then respond to the thoughts and opinions of others? Do we just go around and ignore them? Do we respond to others with the words, I hear what you're saying, but we both know you're wrong? Is this how we, respond? we should be speaking with another, shutting people down, denying them the right to speak and just say what we think? Because in our pride, in our arrogance, we think that we are smarter and better than them. Our friend Solomon is about to teach each of us that that's not wise, that's dumb. Look what he says at verse 2 to 4. Solomon says, Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, What are you doing? As Solomon shares that it can be foolish to talk back to people, to shut down ideas and to make bold stands and say that they are wrong and that we are right. Especially foolish, as Solomon suggests here, to leave the presence of others with passionate outbursts, to rage quit, or alternatively to keep arguing the point when they have already been rejected. And especially foolish, he says, to keep laboring and arguing the point in front of those who are in authority. And very foolish to do it in front of the king who has supreme authority. I think parents are very familiar with the bold state stands and statements of their children. In most households, what mom and dad says goes. They are the final authority. And I think parents, when they're arguing with their children, parents consider this conversation. This conversation will work out so much better for you, my child, if you just kept quiet. And do what you're told. Because at this rate, if you keep going and talking back to me, something worse may happen to you. And that's what Solomon says here in verse 5. By holding your tongue, no harm will come to you. But he also says in verse 5 and 6 that there is a wise time to bring up things that weigh on your heart. That there is a time to be quiet and there is a time to make a stand. And in regards to proper timing, I think a good example can be drawn from the book of Esther. Uh, the book of Esther. Uh, it's such an interesting book. It's the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God. And I think the reason behind that is God is at work through his covenant promises, but he also calls us to be partakers in, those covenant in that covenant work. In the book of Esther, God works to bring about the salvation of his people through ordinary men and women. A little bit of context to what is happening in the book. Uh, an edict a proclamation of the king has gone out to kill all the Jews. And Mordecai, Esther's uncle, says to Esther, who is now queen, perhaps you have come to this royal position, ordinary you, to help in this hour of need. Implying perhaps God has chosen you, just an ordinary person, to fulfill his purpose and to save his people. 
And what does Esther do? Well, she agrees to help. But Esther, in seeking to reverse the current edict, does not go in barging into the royal throne room and say, husband, listen to me. You've made a terrible mistake. Uh, no, she doesn't do that. Because opposing the king didn't work well for Vashti. And it wouldn't do well if Esther did that. So what Esther does is that she creates an environment in which her request will not only be heard, but be granted by the king. And what she did worked. And the point being made, and Solomon says it here, is that if you're going to bring up an urgent matter that may be met with resistance, choose the best time in which to present your ideas that not only would it be heard, but perhaps even granted. For who knows if the opportune moment comes? Who really knows what the outcome will be? For not even a king is all-knowing. So Solomon says, verse 7 to 8, that nothing, humanly speaking, has been promised or spoken with absolute certainty. After all, we human beings are finite and cannot fathom really what just lies around the corner. And because we are finite, because we lack understanding, we can make wrong decisions. We can even do wicked things, thinking it won't cause any harm. But again, Solomon observes that this too is foolish. For surely wickedness will be judged. Let's have a look now at what verse 10 and 11 says. Solomon says, Then too I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Uh, there are some out there, uh, perhaps even more than just some, who think that wickedness bears fruit. They will gloat and seek the praise of others for the godless and sinful schemes they have done. And because they get away with it, verse 11, they will go after even more wicked activities, more sinful activities. And when something gives us joy, we will continue looking for it, well, that, won't we? Forever chasing after that dopamine hit. For example, the person who gets a thrill out of doing dangerous activities, skydiving or driving really fast, to feel that rush, to feel that excitement, they will continue looking for that, looking for that feeling. And they just don't go back to that same activity they were doing last week because that won't give them the same joy, that same dopamine hit. So they go after something more dangerous, a bigger jump, a faster car, something even crazier than the last because they want to experience that thrill, that excitement, that high, but now just bigger and better. Now the same can be done with sin. The same can be done with sin and wicked living. Sin can gratify us. But sometimes in wanting to meet and gratify those desires, we will crave something more. Something more sinful, something more wicked. More parties, more wealth, more sex, more food, more drink. Just a hunger for more. And so in that pursuit to meet those cravings, greater godlessness is sought. Greater wickedness, greater sin is sought. A desire to meet the longings of the heart and so further turning to wickedness and sinful schemes. 
uh, the so-called fruit of wickedness, the gratification it can provide, can convince us that this is the way to live. Especially convince us if we, don't, if we do not perceive any consequences. And sadly, some who pursue unrighteous living can do this without any noticeable consequence. As Solomon says, they died and were buried no differently to someone who lived a moral and righteous life. In other words, they lived a life without any consequences. And sadly, I think one of the most popular songs to play at a funeral is Frank Sinatra's, I Did It My Way. Are those words, and now the end is near, and so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more than this. I did it my way. I did it my way. It's a theme of those who do not pursue God, who lived a life their own way. But for anyone who has heard that song, it doesn't sound uplifting. Sinatra sounds down. It's almost as if as Sinatra sings, he doesn't believe his own words. That the looming taste of death built on godlessness would feel like a mouth filled with ash rather than the sweet taste of honey. So this is what Solomon says in verse 12 and 13. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. Uh, what Solomon is saying here is that while it appears that they have done it their way, in reality, that final curtain will be met with the Lord Almighty. He says their days will not be lengthened. And I think Solomon here is referring to judgment. That when we choose godlessness rather than God, a life lived chasing after the fleeting things of this world. As Solomon has told us previously that this is like chasing after the wind. It's vanity. It's meaningless. And when that final curtain comes... And we stand before God where the days of eternity are met with weeping and gnashing of teeth, with judgment, with condemnation. It will not go well for those who have lived for themselves, who have done it their way. But for those who have feared God, but for those who have feared God, who have been reverent before Him, those who have lived for Jesus, who have trusted in His death and His resurrection, who trust in Jesus' work for the forgiveness of sins, and who live for Jesus at the center of their lives, our scripture tells us time and time again that God will bless them. And on that final day, will be welcomed with even more blessings. One of my favorite passages in Scripture it comes from Mark chapter 10. And the promise given to those who follow Jesus. Let me just read verse 29 and 30 for us. Where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, 
No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Uh, Wickedness does not bear fruit. But living for Jesus, living for the gospel, will bear a rich harvest, both now, but in the age to come. And this transitions well into our final point. Our final point, only in God is joy and wisdom found. As Solomon considers what he has said in verse 10 to 13, verse 14 is almost that summary statement of those thoughts. He is then drawn to consider the limits of human understanding. It's almost as if he says at verse 14, he says, I don't understand. I don't understand how it works. I don't understand the outcomes and the ways of life. How does one get the best out of life? Is it through wisdom? Is it through wickedness? Is it through righteousness? He goes, I just don't know. None of it makes sense. So what does he say? Well, he says, verse 15, if it doesn't make sense, then find your joy in what God gives you. Find joy and be glad in all the days God has given you. I, I met up with John Jansen a couple weeks ago. Uh, many of us would know John. And his health is not good. But as I talk to John, uh, there is such a joy that emanates from him. For he knows that the present sufferings are not worth comparing to what God has in store for him. Eternal life. And he even says of his present sufferings that God uses this for good. Now John doesn't necessarily know what this good is. But he finds a joy that God is using it for good. As I talked with John, he is doing exactly what Solomon says we should do. Finding joy in the days God has given us. To rejoice even in suffering. Friends, I think we need to be reminded of this more often. I think so easily we can grumble in our hardships. And in those hardships we can forget. We can forget God. So often we can be like Job and complain, but in the midst of complaining, we can forget who God is. That God is working at all things for those who love Him. So friends, let's remember who God is. Let's remember who we are. His adopted children whom He bought at a price through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And let's find joy in the days that God gives us. Let's even find joy in the hard days, for even those are a gift from God. In God, real joy is found. And not just joy, but also in God, we are told, real wisdom is found. Solomon ends our chapter with these words. Have a look with me. He says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labor that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night. Then I saw that all that God has done, no one can comprehend what goes under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. A real wisdom is understanding that we are finite, that we haven't got any 
of the answers. But it's turning to the one who has all the answers. God knows. God is finite, is infinite. In him, wisdom is found. And one of the best things is, if we are lacking wisdom, God's word tells us to ask for it. Our New Testament reading from James said, to find joy in our present sufferings. But he also said, if any of us lacks wisdom, then we should come to God and ask for it. And if we genuinely ask without being double-minded, God will give it. In God, joy and wisdom are found. But if we know that joy and wisdom are found in God, what are some of the practical means we can do to be attaining it? If we are looking for joy and wisdom, well, the obvious answer is coming to God. But how do we do that? Well, I have two suggestions for us. The first suggestion is learning from others. Learning from others' experiences in how they have walked with God in the ups and in the downs. For example, when we hear about the trials our brothers and sisters have gone through, the death of a loved one, the broken relationship, the loss of career, the cancer diagnosis, and we hear how God has helped them. Their joy and satisfaction in God can be a real encouragement to us. It can encourage us to go and do likewise. To find joy and meaning in God. Uh, the reading of also of Christian biographies can be helpful in this. As we read their lives of some of the great Christian men and women who have gone before us and hear how God has worked in their lives, it can be a real encouragement to us to continue to find joy, wisdom, and meaning in God. And the second suggestion I have is, and I think it's even better than the first, it's go straight to the source. Go straight to God. Come to God. Come to His Word. Read of the struggles that God's people have gone through in various circumstances and see how God has been faithful to His people. Read how God has guided them. And of course, as the book of James has said already, pray that God would give you wisdom. Pray that God would give you an even greater joy in your Christian walk. Pray that God would continue to teach you more about who He is and more importantly, who you are as one of his adopted children. Now, let me end with this. I think we can often find ourselves thinking highly of ourselves. And I think one of the traps is when we start doing that is that we forget God. And when we fall into the trap of thinking that we are at the center, we can fall into the trap of chasing after meaningless things. Friends, our passage reminds us life lived with God at the center, seeking Him, finding comfort in Him, knowing that He is in control, finding joy in Him, finding wisdom in Him. In Him, we then find meaning. In Him, we then find life. How about we pray? Our Heavenly Father, our Lord, we thank you so much uh, that, for the reminder that meaning, life, joy, wisdom are found in you. And Father, forgive us for those times when we put our lives, put ourselves at the center. And Father, forgive us for those times when we have pursued wickedness rather than seeking after you. Our Father, we pray, help us by your Spirit to continue to to seek you, continue to turn to you. Our Father, we thank you so much for how you have first come to us 
while we were dead in sin and trespasses, you first made us alive in Christ Jesus. Our Father, we pray, help us to continue to seek Jesus each and every day of our lives. Help us to love you more each and every day, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.